Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. My name is Georgia Latif, I'm the content manager here at the Safeguarding Company. I'm really excited today to be joined by Danielle Downey, who is the author of the book, It's No Secret, Thriving After Surviving. So welcome, Danielle. Hi, thanks ever so much for having me. No, that's all right. I was hoping we could go into a little bit of your background to start with, if you don't mind talking no, me through some of your life. <laughs> Some of my life, yeah. Where, where do I start? Um, so I was brought up in the Midlands, uh, a child of the 70s, um, was left with my dad when my parents divorced. They were both quite young. Um, I had a fairly difficult childhood. We had the bailiff in lots of times when I was a kid. There was no money. It, it was it was tough. Um, then left home, um, went to live with my aunt because things in my household were quite difficult. Lived with my aunt really from the age of about 12, 13. Um, some of the dates are hazy as I, I now realise that children who have quite difficult backgrounds, dates, times, specifics of stuff can often be quite shadowy. Um, went on to become a midwife. So went on to do A levels, trained to be a midwife, um, and was a midwife for 19 years. And age about 40, started to have some flashbacks, by which time I'd left midwifery and was starting to work in the domestic abuse sector. So I was working as an IDVA, safeguarding women at the top sort of 3% of women at risk of murder and harm. And found myself driving quite a lot. And whilst I was driving, I started to get flashbacks. Um, and I'd always kind of perhaps knew there would have been something quite dark about my childhood, but not been able to put a finger on it. Um, and what sort of ensued was that I, I came to the realisation that I'd buried um, childhood sexual abuse. Um, so started to go for counselling, really. And that started my journey through to healing, I think. The acknowledgement yeah. of that enabled me then to sort of to get to where I am today. Why do you think it took you so long to start to recall some of these memories of the abuse that you suffered? What I now realise is that for most people, I think the, the mean age for most people to kind of start remembering abuse is, is mid-40s to early 50s. Um, and they think that it's perhaps a lot of it, I think, is just buried trauma. Um, yeah. For me, there was a real conscious, as a hypnotherapist now, I now sort of do a lot of work, obviously, around the subconscious and the conscious brain. And for me, the ramifications of coming to terms with abuse were massive. It meant that it would call into question relationships with siblings, with both my parents who were both at that point still alive, my extended family. It called into question and, and I knew that the, the the ripple effect of that was going to be huge. And I also worked in the court system. So I saw the way that women were treated on the stand. Um, not only by the police, the police are really powerful and things are changing, but also by our criminal justice system. Because I often thought about should I go down the route of, you know, the legal system to try and get some legal yeah. recompense from my father, who was the perpetrator. He is now deceased. Um, but I was terrified of doing that because, like I say, I, I saw the way women were treated with, you know, with with modern day stuff that was going on yeah. with rapes and sexual assaults, let alone historical sexual abuse. So that really put me off. Um, and I sat on it for a good few years before I told anybody else within my family. And what was the reason? Like, what was the thing that made you decide to start telling people about the abuse you had suffered? Um, I, my grandmother died. My, my, both my maternal grandparents were both um, very, very big characters in my life. They were the, the safeguarding element. And I realise now from childhood say, ACE trauma 
that one of the things that worked in my favour was the fact that I had these marvellous women figures in my life, despite the, you know, the trauma that was going on in the background. And when my nan died, um, it led to a conversation with another relative, another relative who said to me, oh, um, I know what your dad did. And at that point, I'd only ever told my husband. Mm. And, um, and I, there was like a Jimmy Savile moment. Was, what do you mean? There's somebody else out here who, who has experienced what I've, what I've experienced. And he, um, she said, he did the same to me. And I just remember standing there thinking, I'm not bonkers. I haven't made all this up. I knew it was yeah. true, but it was a real validation. And that then led me to tell other female figures in my family. Um, and it didn't really go any further then for a few years until it became apparent that actually he tried to hurt somebody else in my family. Yeah. And that then led to it becoming an open issue with the police um, and the courts. Yeah, I know from reading your book, the way you describe both of your grandmothers, it was very beautiful. And I think in your book, because there is so much trauma and there is so much abuse that happens to you it was so lovely to read that you had such good relationships with yeah. both your grandparents yeah and I'm yeah, really I, grateful for that and, and, and I see that the statistically I realized that you know as a child growing up with the things that happened and even later on in adulthood that my the odds are stacked heavily against children like me of course, yes. um, and, and I'm a bit of a freak really I remember speaking to um, somebody who was who I've, I've had quite a lot of court dealings with personal life um, with my husband's ex-wife and we I remember speaking to Kafka's officers and them saying how the dickens are you kind of functioning and I think it's that diff- it's I'm very very fortunate for the people I had in my life but also the resilience that I was never going to let that define where I'm going and yeah. what I'm doing and it's now not part of me it's it's part of who I was yeah um, I don't need to wear the badge anymore particularly of course so at what point when you were younger did you realise that your home life and your upbringing was different to a lot of your friends? <laughs> um, I think I was probably, I realised we had no money. Um, and I remember the bailiffs coming in and taking Paddington Bear bedding oh. and my bed and stuff. And I, I saw it at a car boot sale not long ago. Actually, was like, oh, that was my bedding. I had a bit of a rush of like, oh, that's quite sad. Um, yeah. So I realised things were different. Um, I think I was probably about nine or ten when I started to look at other people who had music lessons and dance lessons and, and lunch boxes were massive and mine really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, like I get like when you're used to it, you're like, oh, everyone must be like this. And then you start yeah. looking around like, oh, actually, I'm the one who's actually quite different. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's really shaped my parenting. I mean, we chatted about that a bit in an email, but it, it shaped my parenting that lunch boxes to me as a parent were really, yeah. oh, still are. My, I've got two older kids at home still that still have lunch boxes. And that for me is a real, like, I, I love making their lunch boxes. I love putting, putting it in a tree. It is definitely yeah. a love language. Yeah. So I realized quite early on that things were different. Um, and that I was, I look back on the, the child that I was, who was often quite hypervigilant, was probably a bit precocious, was aware of sex far too early than I should have been. Mm. Um, and again, because, you know, because the way that, you know, the way my, my life had sort of gone, um, with, with sadness as well. No, of course. So having this kind of home life as you were growing up, how do you think that affected you? Because I know from your book, you did leave to go live with your aunt when you were quite young. Yeah, it, it made me very resilient. Um, <laughs> it made me very, very, and I realise now again a symptom of trauma, but I was very, very used to dealing with conflict. 
Um, It affected my self-esteem massively um, because I didn't really feel sort of particularly that I belonged in one household or another. Um, Yeah, and and I think the resilience for me is the big part. I I say in my book that I I remember my father had laid half a carpet in my bedroom and I'm a bit of a tidy freak, not a clean freak, but I do like order. Again, I realise now part of my desire to be in my intellectual mind is about order and routine. And the fact that this carpet was half laid drove me bonkers yeah <laughs> well, I remember going to find a Stanley knife and a saucepan and some nails and cutting it and nailing it down and and that was my first ever I can do this and if I can do that I can probably do anything and and I'm the first one in with a sledgehammer we re- you know we've renovated about eight houses so I'm the first one in to be saying no we can do this it's, fine. <laughs> it's not a lot that, that phases me but I'm, I'm grateful for that I mean, I'm grateful for the fact that it taught me that I had to be self-reliant and of yeah. course, the, the converse side of that is that it also taught me for a long time not to let people in to help. And part of my healing journey has been now able, I am able to say, I'm drowning today, help. I'm no yeah, longer a When you're used to people taking advantage, it's easier just not to let people in at all, isn't it? And to, like like yeah. you said, be resilient and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. and so, part yeah. of that is learned behaviour. And, you yeah, know, working course. with clients now who suffer, you know, some degree of trauma and anxiety, we do a lot of work about ingrained habits and, you know, this is my trauma response. And yeah. through healing now, I, you know, I now realise that vulnerability is a beautiful strength. Um, it's not a weakness at all. Yeah. So still talking about your childhood, there was a passage in your book where you talked about as you sort of got towards your teenage years, your father wanted to dress you so you looked a lot younger. Yeah. What do you think that did to you as you're growing up and you're wanting to look more mature to be sort of dressed in very little schoolgirl outfits? And I think it, it frustrated me at the time. And, and, I, and again, because I, I I didn't really have any point of reference for other people's relationships with their dads other than because we didn't speak about that sort of stuff when I was at of school course. with friends. It was, it was a fairly no go. I just remember being really frustrated that he wanted my skirt, you know, down below my knees and you know, everybody else was wearing short skirts and I had to wear knee socks. And so I'd roll them down and God forbid he he drove down the road and saw me with my socks rolled up or rolled down. It, you know, yeah. he'd stop the car and have a go at me. But I, I, it's only now looking back again with, you know, with a balance of hindsight, realising that that was part of the control. I think it was also part of the sort of perpetrator that he was. Um, you know, it was his desire sexually almost. Yeah. Which is uncomfortable looking back as an adult. And I'm glad I didn't realise the connotations then. Oh, definitely. Because I think as well, you dressing one way compared to all your school friends, it's just another way to separate you from everyone, isn't it? And to make you feel isolated. Definitely. And I was the kid that had the hideous school sheets. I remember crying in the in the shoe shop age sort of 12, 13, saying, I'm not wearing these. Well, then you, you can't go to school. And school for me was my haven. I was I was the ideal student. I was never I, I was never late. I was the most boring teenager in the world because I was terrified of either being excluded from school or kicked out of my aunt's home. I was never I never smoked, didn't drink until I was about eighteen, nineteen. Never taken a drag on a fag, and couldn't ever imagine doing a drug. Um, yeah. And again, it's part of that safety sort of you know this is I had to fit in. Um, yeah, so the school shoes, I still occasionally see the same pair of school shoes knocking about and go, oh, no, run away. <laughs> burn them, burn them <laughs> Absolutely. So while we're talking about school as well, I guess like you said, from the outside, you were the perfect student, you were really dedicated. 
now when we talk about safeguarding and teachers noticing concerns about students, do you think there were any outward concerns teachers maybe should have reported? Not that we're blaming anyone because I know it is difficult. Yeah. But what could someone have done to maybe help you in the situation? I think it was really difficult. I, I was well dressed, spoke well, did go to school with lunch. Um typically, you know, with that with that child, he probably went massively under the radar. And I have thought over the years, should I try and get my sort of school education notes? Um but, but I, and I look back and just think I probably I just blended in. I, I, I was really good at chameleoning. Chameleoning. Um, I remember trying to hang myself, and I must have been. I think I write in my book maybe maybe eight or nine with a yeah. with a, a leather purse because I just life was just so difficult. Yeah. And thankfully it broke. But there was no teacher to live around to know. The fact that no one in the school knew that you you tried to do that on school yeah. grounds, didn't you? Yeah, it was, it was no one school, knew that. Yeah, it was in the school, um, the school changing room, which was right next to the classroom. Yeah, and nobody sort of noticed. And I would often go to school in tears most mornings. You know, I'd rock up to school crying. But again, I think that because I was well well dressed, I was clean, um, articulate. It, it went under the radar because again, I think back then in the late seventies, early eighties. We weren't as far down the road as we are with safeguarding now. Yeah, I think exactly. are very different. Whereas now I, I look back and kind of think, actually, perhaps, perhaps I would have been picked up. But then I wouldn't be me. I, I, you know, I'm very much of the. No, of course. I go back. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I like you. I really hope that now children experiencing similar things that you went through would be picked up by teachers and other people. Yeah. But like you said, there are so many who just slip. Yeah. But, you know, the, the likes of some parents are exceedingly, exceedingly manipulative and exceedingly yeah. good at covering up abuse. And just because you're, when I had a dealing with children's services around the issues with my dad trying to harm somebody else, she said to me, well, it, it's okay. I, I trust you. And I just thought, actually, that is morally wrong. Just because I'm educated, I was a midwife. I knew the system. You know, at the point they pulled a section, I think they had a um, they had a safeguarding meeting about my family, which was really difficult because I normally sat in on safeguarding meetings. And suddenly there is a you know, suddenly there's an emergency strategy meeting about me and my kids was really tough. And I just remember thinking, you are taking me at face value. You know very little about me because I'm articulate and I know the system. And, and again, you know, the ability to sort of not that I was pulling the wool over people's eyes, but you can see how people still are able to manipulate situations. Of course. So we've already talked a little bit about the abuse you suffered at your at the hands of your father. I read in your book as well that your stepmother was also quite emotionally abusive towards you. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot. To, the household was really complicated. There was lots of domestic, lots of domestic abuse. My father was highly physically abusive and very mentally abusive to everybody. There was money issues. Um, yeah. you know, the level of stress within the house was very difficult. Um, and how did it feel as a child living in a house where there was a lot of domestic abuse occurring? It was terrifying. And I still have, even though I was a midwife, so I was used to people screaming and shouting. If I'm in the street and I hear somebody yell in a certain tone, that feels uncontrolled I still it still gives me a bit of a trigger response like, whoa I don't like that um, yeah and I, I think that's part of the fact that I woke up one night and I could hear this somebody screaming for their life as my dad dragged her down the stairs um yeah. it was horrific and again you know a lot of what having worked in domestic abuse for nine ten years you know 75 percent of kids will hear or see what was going on you know I remember seeing the blood on the floor the following day just like wowzers 
but again, didn't know who to call. I remember watching Childline when Esther Ranson launched Childline and just thinking, oh, is that me? Could I phone? And then again, being terrified, I wouldn't be believed. Did you feel that as these memories started to come back in your adult life, this worry that, am I remembering it correctly? Will people actually believe me about this? Massively, massively. And I, and I always sort of knew, I saw the way victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence were treated. And people saying, well, why? And, and I've had it lots of times, you know, when I, with my book. Well, why, why didn't you? Why didn't you remember that? You know, why didn't you? I realise that there is some issues around dates within my book, yeah. which is why I'm careful to say in my book that this is my perception. So the yeah. dates, according to some of other people, the dates are wrong. And I and I hold my hands up and just say, well, actually, that was my childhood perception. I thought I was around this age. I, I couldn't tell you dates, times of the year with the abuse. Because yeah. I, I don't, and I don't desire to, I don't need to go back and, you know, say it was in a January or a September, it's irrelevant. But I just, you know, I just know that that happened. And when you did start to talk about the abuse, I know that you had, um, I think it's, is it two step, um, siblings who were also? No, I've got, I've got lots. Oh, on your father's <laughs> side or? <laughs> I've got three on my father's side and then three as well on my mum's side. And the other the siblings on your father's side, had they also gone through a similar thing or did they just not believe you? Um, it, it's really difficult to say. And, and I wouldn't like to say because they're not people that I have contact with at all. There is, there is a huge fraction, um, not, not particularly through my design, but it is just the way it's ended up. Um, I think that they, the issues for them were if they believed me, it again opened a huge can of worms for them. A little bit like my reticence about sharing that the mo- if they if acknowledged if they acknowledged what happened to me as a child at the hands of perhaps their mum or yeah. the hands of my dad, it may well call into account other things for them. And you know, and I, I can't speak for them. It's you know, it's a difficult yeah. situation. It's it's a horrible situation for anybody to have to go through. Of um, course, you know, and I bear them no malice at all for their reactions because I think lots of people do. I've had lots of older people come to me as a result of writing my book that have emailed and just said I didn't tell anybody because I told my mum when I was six and she said to me, "Don't be ridiculous, Uncle So and So would never do that." Yeah. Um, and they've held on to that stuff for so many years. So I'm fortunate that I've been able to find my voice. Really, you know, I feel that 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 was such a huge relief to be able to to be able to stand in my power and say, this did happen. You might not like it. I'm not asking you to believe me. I don't need validation. But I know this is this is my truth. It's something, I guess, empowering about it, isn't it? Being able to go, this happened. I acknowledge it. I'm yeah. not crazy. I'm not making it up. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, it, and, and it was really hard. When I released my book, it was very, very difficult. Um, and part of me just thought, what have you done? You're absolute lunatic. Um, you know, stop. But actually, it, it, going um, 2018, I released it, so four years ago, um, it has been one of the best things I've done. And especially, you know, to open doors for other people, because even four years ago, we didn't have the conversations that we're having now. Oh, exactly. Um, you know, yeah. About, you know, about historic childhood sexual abuse and, and the, the, you know, the, the level of issues it leaves people with. What would you suggest for people who maybe have suffered past trauma and want to seek help for it but just don't know how to begin looking into it i think part part of it for me is about actually acknowledging it to yourself um i think before you share anything um we always have to have a conversation with ourselves about you know well, what if if i tell this person what response do i want am i going to be believed um 
and I think that that's when people sort of email me and say this has happened I'm thinking about sharing it with my family I'll always say just be really careful because people's reaction may not be what you think it is yeah because they're thinking about perceptions of society and neighbors and their their own issues um and I think perhaps you know go to a third party you know go to an agency I went to um Razak which is the West Midlands um, Sexual Abuse Centre, had some counselling there and it was it was fantastic. Um, and it was the start of my healing journey, really. It was my ability to tell somebody else, this is what happened. Um, I didn't need to go into detail. I think I yeah. had eight sessions, maybe six sessions of counselling. That's all I allowed myself at the time. <laughs> um, I didn't thought, no, right, I'm going to have this. I'm going to make it last this long. Um, and then we're done. We can put that to bed. But what I realised was that actually it takes quite a long time to to deal through your stuff and stuff still trips you up. No, of course. Um, With counselling, I feel like even now there is still a stigma around people going to counselling. So for people who are scared, who think, oh, it's it'll make me weak and I'm not I'm not strong enough. What are your personal suggestions for people when it comes to making the decision to go to counselling? I think speak to the agency that is sort of offering you the counselling or the person. I think what I, again, what I know as a therapist is that rapport is everything. You can have a counsellor and have 20 sessions, but if your rapport and your connection is not there, it's pointless. You may as well not go. Um, I just, I think that it's exactly the same with um, things like SSRIs, you know, going to the in asking for help at the point that I started my counselling I went to the GP and just said I feel like I'm going mad I can't concentrate my what I now call my stress bucket was overflowing I was just I had no resilience at all I constantly cried and the GP just said to me I'm going to put you on citalopram and I went no 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 I'm not going on one of those drugs and cried again at which they explained to me that actually all it did was help me sort of you know deal with my own serotonin get my own happy hormone up a bit which would give me more resilience and that seemed to take the prejudice away a bit so again I allowed myself six months on that until I weaned myself off but it it got me through that difficult the difficult period of counselling because I think the first three sessions for me of counselling were like I used to walk away and be exhausted for two or three days you had really good explanations in your book about the the physical exhaustion and having to go to bed when you got home. Yeah, it was like I was unfunctioned. Yeah, Yeah, it it, it was the most draining thing emotionally I think I've I've ever been through. Um, And I think because I'd held it for 40 odd years, I've got an underactive thyroid and I see a lot of people now who've been where I've been who also have thyroid issues. And I I do believe that, you know, it's it's from holding that space here and that constriction and not opening our mouths. To say, I think you know the body's. If you read things like Bessel, um, you know the body. The body knows the score. I think I'm sure that's the name of the book. That you know he talks an awful lot about the effects of trauma on the body, and and that for me has been you know has been long lasting. That that keeping that stuff to myself for a long time. Of course, I remember in your book when you talk about going on. Was it antidepressants? Yeah. Yeah. You had a really good explanation that I can't quite remember why the doctor told you it was good, something to do with um, the state of stress and how the levels in your body had kind of gone a bit whacked because you're always in that survival state. Could you explain that a little bit more for me? Yeah, so I think they they told me something about a toilet. I remember thinking, what? when, When we're in a really good state and life trips us up, we've got enough sort of water in our tank to enable us to keep going. 
But when we've been through trauma after trauma after trauma, as my life seemed to be back then, my toilet flushed. I had no more water left in the tank. So what the SSRI did, the citalopram, it just started to add my own levels of water up again. So I had enough to kind of flush the toilet. Because if you've got no more water, you've got no more water. Yeah. A little bit like, you know, energy resilience, that sort of thing. I now know that what I was lacking was really serotonin. Um, yeah. And that's, that obviously is what the SSRI gave me. Um, or certainly helped me, you know, to produce my own and keep my own in my system. It was really good to read about that because I think, like with therapy and counselling, there is also a stigma towards antidepressants and drugs like that. So it was good Definitely. to sort of read from your point of view as someone who maybe didn't want anything like that yeah. to actually go onto it and find benefits in it. It gave me the ability to cope. I remember sitting there after two weeks and just thinking, you could tell me the world's going to end and I really wouldn't give a toss. It just it gave me that nonchalancy, which allowed me the it allowed me the headspace almost to go and do the counselling. And after after five or six months, I remember thinking, actually, I'm not particularly me. I'm a bit like a switched down version of me. Yeah. Which was okay, but actually, I do quite like being quite vibrant. I noticed my whole energy was quite low, and I was like, oh, I don't like this. So I weaned myself off, off over two or three months. Um, but again, when my clients come to me, I always say to them, it's great that you're on these. Because yeah. actually the work I do now as a hypnotherapist really helps somebody who is on who's on those drugs. And I guess people will have slightly different um, experiences, won't they? Yeah. yeah. I remember another passage of your book that I really liked was when you were talking about weaning yourself off of them. Yeah. And I think you raised your voice at your children. And your husband <laughs> straight away was like, oh, do we need to go back on them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I very nearly threw something at him. Not that I did. But I just remember thinking, no, actually, you've got so used to this quiet, sort of little yeah. dulled down version of me. And, and you know, I explain to clients now that anger, anger is okay. You know, and we're allowed to be angry. You know, we're allowed to raise our voice. But I think he's got so used to this little, this little, you know, sort of wallflower who didn't yeah. say boo or didn't, you know, didn't raise her voice that he went, oh, it's quite it's short. Just... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's another thing I feel like women are trying to um, remove these ideas about how women have to be demure and we've got to be quiet. And yeah. if you raise your voice, you're bloody crazy. So it's, yeah, trying to break down those um, stereotypes that have kind of developed about women and anger. It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, you know, if we, if we go back evolutionary, you know, anger anger was there to keep us alive. Um, and, you know, anger has a great place. You know, it makes us brave. It makes us being able to lift cars off children and stuff. Yeah. And it's, and it's okay. You know, there, there are times I, I raise my voice to my kids. Um, but actually in the same breath, it tends to be quite controlled now. I can tend to say, tidy your bloody room. Anyway, do you want a cup of tea? There's a real balance. It's no longer that sort of um, that really out of control, ragey anger that I think I probably used to have back then. Speaking of your children, can we talk about your experiences and how it framed the way that you raised your own children? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, what was we've talked a little bit about um, like lunch boxes and your love language <laughs> because you didn't have those things growing up that you wanted to make sure your children had all of that. Yeah. What are some other things that you wanted to give them that you didn't have when you were younger? I think security was a huge one for, for me. And um, that feeling of safety, that the feeling of that it, the love is unconditional. Um, Christmas, I'm a complete lunatic. I remember just, I remember hating Christmas. Um, and I'd see siblings and friends be completely spoiled. So I, I do go bananas at Christmas. 
But your um, birthday was also one that you were yeah. forgotten about quite a bit, weren't you? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I owned my birthday. I got to my 40th birthday and just went, actually, stop allowing other people to trying to sort your birthday out. Own it yourself. So I, I, I arrange my own party now. I get my own birthday cake. I make Amazing. it how I want it, which is really sort of, you know, really brought that back. I think the the thing for for me with my children was I'd always sought to keep them very very safe. I'm, I'm fiercely fiercely you know um, warrior like with my kids. Um, yeah. And I think as a result of you know my traumatic childhood, it's very difficult sometimes to take a step back. I have spoken to my children about about my childhood. I remember getting the eldest one getting to sort of fourteen fifteen and sharing some stuff with her. And I think it came as a result of an argument about you know I'm so hard done by. And I think in that moment, I just kind of flashed and went, you're hard done by, for real? <laughs> are you having a lot? Um, and kind of sort of spouted out stuff. So my kids are all quite open. My kids also know, um, my youngest two are 15 and 16, nearly 17, but they know that my father is now deceased. They know that he was a really unpleasant person. Um, and they know that, you know, that there's reasons why we don't see extended family um, because yeah. of the issues around childhood. And, and that makes me really sad. That you know that they're kind of paying the price for for one man's you know disgustingness. Yeah. Um, but we, you know we, we do we do kind of just sort of say actually it is how it is and we we've got each other which is that's a real blessing. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think we assume that we just deserve things like unconditional love and we deserve to always feel safe and to be provided for. But in reality, it's such a privilege. Yeah. to have that and to have that family dynamic where you're so loved yeah, so yeah. it sounds yeah. like you've just got an amazing dynamic with all your children though so yeah no, no, like life is really good you know and I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's easy yeah. I think you assume don't you as your kids get older that, that it gets easier but you know there is six of them are grown-ups now or four of them are grown-ups you know the other one's about to flee the nest in September to college so I'm sure we left you with just one um oh, wow. <laughs> like normal people like normal people yeah <laughs> um we haven't really talked a lot about your mother we've talked a lot about your dad and your stepmom yeah um are you still in contact with your mum no I'm not um when, since my book came out it got very difficult um, I, I, I imagine I, yeah yeah I, I love my mum dearly um I we are we are like two peas in a pod um I see an awful lot of me and I think that was probably the problem with my stepmother she saw a lot of my mum in me we're both yeah. quite feisty, both quite driven, both very empathetic. Um, and I love her dearly. We're just not meant to connect in this life, I don't think. I think we probably yeah. have a huge amount of connection in past lives and we'll continue to do so. But um, just, just not in this life. Yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting in your book when you talked about sometimes our expectations of what we want from other people in regards to love and time can be different yeah. to what they are able to give us and to what they actually want from us, like relationships. Yeah, I definitely. forget that they're two-sided and that someone can give you a lot less than you give back to them. Yeah, and I think I, I look back now, again, you know, with the balance of hindsight, and my mum was really young when she had me. She was in a very abusive marriage. My father was highly abusive in every manner. Um, she did the right thing to walk away. She didn't know. She thought she was doing the best thing by leaving me with him you know, because my aunt and my grand were around. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I bear her no malice with that. And I, we have very little connection because we didn't see each other very much. You know, it was effectively, you know, I, I perhaps saw her once a year and had, you know, some communication because I think my father probably stopped a lot of the communication because he was terrified of somebody knowing that. 
So, and, and again, it's that lovely ability to sort of look at a situation now and just say, and I think I say at the end of my book, you know, because at that point, actually, as I was writing it, I was in contact with my mum, you know, that I, I, I don't bear any malice with anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think at some point as well, there are certain like relationships, friendships that, just they have to be let go after a while. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I remember having some sort of, um, I did some like counselling with little doll things. I can't even think what it's called. Family based therapy sort of thing that's very big in Portugal or Brazil. Um, and I remember her saying to me, you know, you, you have to be almost grateful for your dad because if you didn't have your dad, then you wouldn't be here. And I went, whoa, never considered mm. that before. Um, and I remember sort of saying after, okay, okay, I'm, I'm grateful. This was at the point he died. Um, actually, I'm grateful for really being here, but yeah. I think I don't have to. I'm not sure about the forgiveness thing with that one. Um, no, I think, <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Sure, sure out on that one. Yeah, I think speaking of your dad, um, for you, I know you said before that you made sure to sort of keep your children away from him and sort yeah. of distance yourself from him. Did that change after he passed away? Just like your your feelings towards your father, like are your children curious about um, that grandfather at all? They they all know that he they all know that he drowned. They know that he I, they know he they know I was abused. Um, they don't know the ins and outs. Um, and I think that, that I was actually really glad when he passed away. And, mm. and I I've never shed a tear. I've, I, I'm sad on Father's Day because I'm sad about what should have been. But I actually you could have had, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and not that you know I would want my future, I wouldn't want my past to be any different. You know, it has made me who I am. But I am sad that you know that other people that that you know that that it, he wasn't fatherly in that yeah. respect, and anything that kind of was done was done with a with a degree of control or coercion. Um, I'm just glad that he's not around to help to hurt anybody else, and I think my kids feel that and and. If you kind of sort of look on my Facebook round about the date that he passed away, which was about 25th of May, there is always a small post about fish ponds because he drowned in a fish pond. Um, terribly sad after I wished him dead six weeks later, he did, he did, um, sadly fall into a fish pond and pass away. Um, mm-hmm. for me, that was a, actually thank you karma. Um, yeah. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah. I did find it really interesting in your book how after he drowned, you got that visit from that police officer who um, was the police <laughs> sent after you. Yeah, and again, it, it becomes a little bit like EastEnders. It's just that, are you having a laugh? Really? It literally, how much, it how much like you throw at me? <laughs> yeah, it, it was, and I remember writing it and just thinking, you, this cannot be real. This cannot be one person's life for, you know, for nearly 18 months with mm. finding out, you know, that he'd abused well tried to abuse um you know somebody I was very close to yes. um and then had you know then had um he tried to sort of um deny it he'd started stalking my house and then when it when I eventually sort of wished him dead in a text to my brother sadly you know that was sort of I think then he drowned and then my my, um, my brother sent the text to the police to sort of saying perhaps my sister killed him I said are you really for real just this uh, you couldn't write this sort of stuff it was like, oh, that's not plausible at all. <laughs> that Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just remember the police officer from CID coming around. It was a really beautiful, like, I think it was June time. It was in an afternoon. And they'd called me and said, can you come down to the police station? And I'd thrown a hissy fit and just said, absolutely not. Mm. I've got a couple of friends in the police who'd said to me, don't go down to the police station. I'm represented. So he'd come to the house. My husband had been there because my husband was aware of everything. 
And my husband, I remember my husband saying to me, don't say a word, just shush. And as this, this lovely copper actually sort of got this massive piece of paper out of it. And my brother had printed it into big letters. Like, what are you doing? It's not in context. I wish you dead was in huge letters, but there was a longer context behind it. Yeah, there was more in that message, wasn't there? As opposed to I want you dead. Um, and this peace officer just sort of saying, well, did you write this? And that, that was it. That was like the torch paper stand back. Yes, I did. And I wish I'd put my foot on his head. And my, my husband was going, shush, shush, don't. And the, and the police officer was lovely. He just said to me, I completely understand. If that was me, I would be thinking exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, and then they just said that. They were thinking it was more for the coroner, that the coroner sort of wanted to know the context that that was written. Um, but I think they did, they did check my car and stuff to check I hadn't gone through various traffic cameras and stuff. Oh. <laughs> If you just read the full message, there's the full context. <laughs> yeah, I think the police were really quite glad actually that you know that another perpetrator was off, you know, was off the um, <laughs> off the radar. Really, it done them a favour. Is that sometimes the problem as well with um, historic sexual abuse when it actually you try to get convictions because it happened long ago? Do they usually happen, or is, is there a timestamp? I think on no. That? I think there's no timestamp on it. I don't think. I think with things like assault, there's a six month timestamp. But I think with stuff like sexual abuse, my trouble was I had I had no evidence at all, and the person yeah. who could have corroborated, who initially sort of said actually you know he did it to me, then retracted. Um, so yeah. at the point I sort of thought I had got enough to go to the police because I do want to nail him. Perhaps yeah. I am brave enough. That was then sort of taken away. Um, and, and, and I, like I say, I'd seen the way that people were spoken to on the stand. I'd recently come off antidepressants and I knew that that would have been used against me. The fact that I couldn't give, I couldn't give an accurate date or a time. The victim blaming towards people, survivors of assault is horrific. It's absolutely yeah. horrific. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, at the point I asked the police, the police were amazing actually at every step of the way. I called the police when he was stalking my house. And they pulled him in um, and threat- I think they gave him a harassment warning at that point. Um, and they said to him, you know, you stay well away. That's good. And it was, yeah, which was great. And it was at that point then that he started to go around the houses of other people sort of saying that I was mad. Um, so no controlling, tried- isn't it, that behaviour? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. of course, he had to make sure that I wasn't bleached in case I, I think the police had then said to him, look, you know, this is what we, this is what you did to your daughter. This is what she's told us. So he realised then that I could potentially start sort of telling people. And I was fairly unashamed at that point. I, I was telling family, friends and stuff. Yeah. Actually, this is what's going on. So I think he was making sure I wasn't bleeding. Yeah. It's like um, other cases when one victim comes forward, one survivor, there's normally a trail of others, aren't there? And it's a little bit like Jimmy Savile. I was watching a documentary the other day, you know, that the when people sort of, put stuff together I'm, the, the end of the Jimmy Savile documentary is horrific with the poor girl who's he's trying to grope her while they're actually on screen yeah and nobody did anything at that point and I think it's not until we look back again you know with a balance of hindsight and retrospect and just go what so you can only do what you can do and you know I'm, I'm really grateful that people like him were actually sort of snared yeah especially people who are like in the public eye who yeah, he was yeah. basically a national treasure wasn't he he was, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Exactly. So now with the work you're doing, do you want to just tell me a little bit about what you do and how you're helping other people? Yeah, so I, I set up um, a charity called um, the, not Speak Out Sisterhood, it's the Survivor to Thriver Contribution Club. So myself and um, other people that I know contribute a pound each week 
into a pot and so we financially help other people tends to be people practicing domestic abuse we paid for washing machines new locks car repairs carpet in flats when people tend to get rehoused after fleeing domestic abuse they often leave with nothing um so yeah. that that's it's really close to my heart um i've got a group on facebook called speak out sisterhood that started i opened that immediately after i wrote my book because so many people were coming to me just saying this happened to me it happened to me and when we look yeah. at the stats of you know one in six one in six people will suffer sexual abuse for the age of 18. Um, that's, that's huge. So there's a, yeah. that's a really active group. There's lots of people on there now who have sort of fled domestic abuse. Um, I'm not so actively involved in domestic abuse stuff as I used to be. I was doing a lot of work with local police and charities down here. And then um, 10 months ago decided, well, two years ago, decided to train as a hypnotherapist. Um, COVID got in the way and then I yeah. qualified this month. So I've been working as a hypnotherapist for six months. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And again, it's the ability now to sort of help people kind of get out their own way, get out their own head and see the potential for healing is within them. It's just really empowering. So Wonderful. Not just for men and women. You know, it's, it's, it's able, I'm able to give back, which is great. Perfect. What we'll do for our, our listeners is in the show notes, we'll have links to that Facebook group you mentioned, Thank to the you. charity, and to your book as well, if anyone's interested in purchasing that. Real. Um, Thank you. It was so amazing to talk to you today. <laughs> I really, so really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Did you have anything, um, any final words you'd like to say to the listeners? No, no. And I, I, what I tend to normally just say is that it doesn't matter where you've been. It's where you're going that really counts. You know, that you are not the person. It's sometimes our, our abuse, our trauma isn't who we are. It's how we are at certain moments in time when things trigger us. But it isn't fundamentally, you know, how it's not fundamentally who we are. And I think that's really important for people to kind of remember. I think that's a good note for us to leave it on there. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com.